years I've walked these many miles have aged my hands and bruised my feet. Pressing my pen to the paper, leaving a legacy that I did not intend. In our truest character, I don't believe we intend to be great. Our minds waver with fear that our heart is not capable of great things. What is our potential as heroes? Will we be people that run away from the fire or toward it? My destination may be unknown, but my path is set. My journey is fixed on one direction. Forward. Maybe it's that very thing that defines us as legends. The hero of our stories. Above all else, our desire. Our hope should now and always be to move forward. Good morning, Cornerstone. Are you guys excited? Come on, this is the place that we're excited about what God's going to do. My name is Scott Rogers. I want to welcome everyone at the Santan campus, everyone at the Scottsdale campus, all of you joining us online, those of you at the 5 o'clock service. What else, man? I mean, come on, man. Let's give it up for everybody else that's joining with us today. Thank you for welcoming us to your campus. We are in the middle of a series called Legend, but before we dive into that, I think... I think we should have at every campus this morning, after every service, just a just a time of prayer and healing for all of the Oregon Duck and USC Trojan fans today. Would that be a, a good expression of compassion for the hurting people of the world? Man, what a great weekend for, uh, for Arizona football. And it's hopefully going to get even greater as we dig into this series right now. We're in the, the deal called Legend. And we're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul and how God kind of just jumped in and disrupted his life and how Paul responded to that. And not only are we just going to talk about someone else, but we're going to try to learn how does God disrupt our life? What does that look like? And then in turn, how do we respond to God in such a way that God can do something significant in and through our life, just like he did with the Apostle Paul? Now, the first week I had the opportunity to be here and we talked about Paul's, uh, we call it the Damascus Road experience. In Acts chapter 9, he is out persecuting, even killing Christians. And for those that they didn't kill, they drag them off to prison, men and women, because they're part of this whole thing he thought was blasphemous to God. And he's going to be God's policeman, bringing him to justice. And so Saul or Paul, the same guy, is out persecuting people and Jesus disrupted his life. And quickly after that, his life was immediately marked by obedience. And then from there, God sent him out on a new mission in life. And we learned, man, when God comes in, he disrupts our norm. And when we genuinely encounter Christ, he genuinely transforms our life. Last week, Pastor Lynn taught, how many guys were here last week at all the campuses? Raise your hand if you were here. Man, was that not amazing? I was watching it online from my home in Folsom, California. And it was on Tuesday. And I'll tell you what, it was 
awesome. I mean, Lynn was getting after it. I wrote down a couple of statements I wanted to, to recap because here's what Lynn said last weekend. He says, if there's only one thing I ever get right, it's following Jesus that I'm going to get right. And he goes on, he said in another moment, he said, every strong Christian you know has a story of surrender. They have a moment in which they had to get all in with Jesus. So last weekend, Lynn really challenged us about being all in for Christ. He wasn't he wasn't tiptoeing around. Um, he was getting right after it. And I just love that about last weekend's message. So this week, we're going to look at a different facet of what happened in the Apostle Paul's life. And therefore, what we can learn about our own walk with Christ in this week. Because what happens is, Paul is radically disrupted. Jesus comes into his life. He surrenders his life to him. He walks away from his life of religious good works, being a Pharisee, and his social status. And he chooses to be a follower of Jesus and literally set his life on a new mission, giving everything to Christ. And what happens at that point is that Jesus, right from that time, calls him into community with other believers. It was like simultaneous. He gives his life to Jesus. Jesus calls him into community with other believers. And if you remember it all, if you were here uh, in week one, we talked about how God had, uh, Jesus appeared to Paul, blinded him for a few days, sent him off to this place to hang out for a few days. And then um, Jesus spoke to this guy named Ananias, who was a brand new believer, and said, Ananias, go minister to Paul. And Ananias was resistant. He's like, no, that dude's killing people. There's no way I'm going. And, and, and the Lord spoke to him and said, just go. Ananias goes, ministers to Paul. God heals his sight. And here's what it says in verse 19. From that point of Acts chapter 9. It says, Saul, or Paul, stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. So immediately, he's immersed into the community of believers. And it's the same for us. When we make the decision to follow Christ, we are called by him to engage the community of believers. Call it the church, which is really people, right? Not a building. But there are churches like this in Santan, in uh, Scottsdale, and all over the East Valley, and you know, everywhere, right? God calls us into community as followers of Christ. Not long after, a few verses down in verse 26 of Acts 9, it says that when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, so he goes from Damascus to Jerusalem, about 150 miles, makes the trek, goes to Jerusalem. It says he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. Wouldn't you? I mean, this dude's killing people that are following Jesus. And they hadn't heard, they hadn't seen the, the Twitter feed yet. They did not know that Paul was now a Christian. All they knew was what he had done previously. When he comes into town, somehow knocking on their door somewhere, someplace and sometime, and it says that they were all afraid of him and they did not believe that he had truly become a believer. But the point is, he sought out the community of faith as soon as he got to town. Because Jesus called him in to community and he does the same for you and for me. Now, when I was a kid, I'm going to show a little bit of age here. Is that okay? Scottsdale, is that okay? Because they're resoundingly silent here in Chandler right now. When I was a kid, I had to ride the bus to school and I had to walk down to the bus stop down the street a ways, and almost every morning before I would go down to the bus stop, I wanted to get in another rerun black and white episode of The Lone Ranger. Does anybody remember The Lone Ranger? Anybody who's maybe like 80 and under above or anything like that? Remember The Lone Ranger? Come on, let's do a little Lone Ranger history and trivia here. So you had the masked man 
who's going around fighting against outlaws in the wild American West, probably like down in Casa Grande. I don't know where it was, but he lives down there, I think, with Elvis. So anyway, keep on moving. So the Lone Ranger, the masked man, no one knows who he is. He lives in obscurity. He's anonymous, kind of doing his thing, but he has a faithful sidekick named... Wow, yeah, Santan, you got it, Tonto. And Tonto would affectionately call the Lone Ranger what? Kimosabi, 12 people got it here. So Tonto would get on his beautiful white stallion named Silver with his guns at his side that when he shot them, what came out? Silver bullets, come on. And so when they would go off after the outlaws, the silver would rear up and he'd kind of get back like this. And when before they began their pursuit, what would he say? hi oh silver away. And at the end of every episode, it seemed like, because, you know, they always get the bad guy. And they always have the, the conflict and then the resolution and all this kind of stuff. And they get the bad guy and he would ride off, you know, hi oh silver away. And then inevitably someone would say, who was that masked man? Right? I mean, he's a stud of all. I mean, he was awesome. The problem with the Lone Ranger is that that just doesn't work for followers of Jesus. Because when you read the Bible, though God may disrupt an individual's life, he never calls them into a life of independence. God always calls us into a life of community. Just read your Bible. He's always working through communities, through cities and through groups of people, his church, he's called us to live in the community. I think, well, why is that? Why did God Paul, call Paul into community? Why does he do that for us? And here's what my personal experience has been, and I'm going to show you in just a moment that I think scripture backs us up, is that God often does his work in our life through other followers of Christ. That's just the way it is. Look at Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go there real quick. And if you don't, it's going to be on the screen. But I want to point this out because in Acts chapter 2, if you're familiar with Scripture, this has been used a lot of times to talk about the life of the church and what it looks like. And especially we call it the early church. Let me set the context real quick though because I want you to think through this with some different perspective if you're familiar with this. So Paul, he's out persecuting believers. And I have to, I have to imagine he's not the only one. He's got his entourage. There are probably other religious guys out there doing the, the, the policeman work for God, they think, and they're persecuting, killing Christians. And they're out knocking down doors, doing their deal. And you think, okay, when Paul kind of came up and they, they would knock down a door or whatever that looked like, what did they see when they walked into the followers of Jesus? Would they kick a door down and find three guys sitting there playing Bible trivia or bingo, wearing their cheesy Christian t-shirts like, Jesus is my homeboy kind of stuff? What did it look like when they busted on the scene? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that God has poured out his spirit on the whole earth. God is stirring revival across the world and thousands of people are coming to Christ. People are coming to Christ on a daily basis through all of what God's doing through the ministry of the apostles. It's kind of like the startup phase of a business. Everybody's excited. Everybody's full of vision. Everybody's ready to get after it. 
Or it's opening day at the ballpark. Or it's the honeymoon. I mean, like, nothing is better than that startup season. And God is moving. And here's what it looks like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is what Paul would bust into when he's trying to search these folks down. He says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were engaged in God's word, though it wasn't written, the New Testament at that point. They were, they were leaning into the teaching of the apostles. And it says they were devoted to fellowship. Literally, they, literally, excuse me, coming from diverse backgrounds and circumstances, they had one common denominator, and that was we want to live our life with Christ at the center. So let's unite with that common denominator and do life together. And it goes on. They were devoted to sharing uh, in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which maybe some of us call communion. And communion is a powerful worshiping time of remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, which actually at all of our campuses this weekend after each service, we're going to worship by taking communion together in just a little bit. They were also devoted to prayer. So think about this. They're getting together, devoted to prayer, taking communion together. They're leaning into the teaching of God's word. They're fellowshipping. So what's the outcome of that? What's the result? Here's what it says. A deep sense of awe came over them all. I would imagine they're literally like, God is working in our midst. My crazy uncle just gave his life to Jesus. That dude was so far from from God. That's amazing. God is doing crazy things. There's a sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in some place and shared everything they had. Everybody say share. And then it gets extreme. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Now, keep that in context. If you feel like you want to do that, just run it by Lynn. All right, go for it. But that's not my focus. But it's extreme. I wonder if it's because they, they were in such an awe of God that worldly things became so minuscule to them. And they're like, man, what I thought was really, really super important because God is so present, it seems so small. It says they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. What's interesting there, let's just pause for a second. God's moving. He pours out his spirit. Revival is happening. People are coming to Christ. Miracles are happening in that time. And they are in awe of what's going on. Yet in the midst of it, they still needed one another to share what they had. Isn't that interesting? I'm thinking of my American individualistic, independent style of being a Christian is that I'm just going to Okay, I'll go to church with some folks and then I'll head home and I'll do my little Bible devotion reading time at home and pray at home and have my private little life as a believer and expect God to like intervene at the office and at school or wherever I'm at outside of the body of Christ because I'm all about, it's just, it's, it's a, it's an individual lifestyle. But God is moving and yet they still needed one another because God often does his work in us through other followers of Christ. It goes on. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Man, these were some fanatical people. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. Here's a deal. This afternoon when the Cardinals game is on, I want you to call somebody up. I want you to say, hey, what are you doing? I'm just watching the game. Well, it's the third quarter, two minutes left. That's a good game. Well, hey, man, you want to come over and take communion? Come on over. Let's just worship and pray. That's what's going on. Yeah, that's cool. I'll do it. I'm on my way. They're meeting in homes. They're taking the Lord's Supper. 
And they're sharing their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. God often does his work in our life through other followers of Christ. I had the unenviable privilege of uh, facilitating a funeral uh, six to eight weeks ago for a 38-day-old baby. And it was uh, some friends of ours in our church, Luke and Jennifer, and uh, baby Felicity was, was born premature, but that wasn't the big, the big, big challenge. The big challenge was there were so many complications. Um, the, they didn't look good. It wasn't going in a good direction. And I remember the first day I went to the NICU at the hospital to visit Luke and Jen and Felicity. Um, you know, we're looking at Felicity and she just, she didn't, she didn't look good at all. And of course, the amazing people that do that work were tending to her, doing a phenomenal job like they all do, but it just wasn't looking good. And one of the questions I asked Luke and Jen, I said, I said, um, tell me about your family. Do you have family that you can lean on right now? And with out hesitation, they said, our small group at church is our family. Their family, their parents and uh, immediate family live in Southern California. They're in Northern California. And they said, you know, they're, they're distance. They're trying to come up and visit. But we are getting so much encouragement from our small group, from our church. They're praying for us. They're bringing us meals at night. They're visiting us in the hospital. They are really a source of strength for us right now. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of the Acts 2 church. Serving one another, meeting one another's needs. I'll tell you this. When you are at your strongest, you're still not strong enough. We need the strength of others in our life to live the life God has called us to live. Because God does his work in us through other believers. And as Felicity passed on, of course, this horrible grief and pain, their small group, uh, it was amazing how that was their family. That was their family. They got in the context of community around Christ in a smaller setting where they could do life together and that's where God showed up. Of course, they come to church on Saturday night, Sunday, whatever it is, and hopefully they worship and experience God and heard something taught from God's word. But when the rubber met the road, it was that group of people that they leaned on and God used the most in this painful season in their life because God does his work in us through others in the body of Christ. Now, knowing that, all right, God calls us into community, called Paul into community. He uses Ananias to minister to Paul and the other apostles to minister to Paul, just like we minister to one another. Um, here's the fact, though. If you've been around a church or any church for more than two weeks, you're going to start to realize, man, church is messy. Why? Because it's made up of people, right? It can just get messy. It's made up of people. Think about, uh, I think about the apostle Paul and God's moving God radically disrupts his life. He's now going out sharing the message of Jesus. And uh, God's moving in powerful ways. Yet, at the same time, simultaneously, he's got conflict. Conflict with this guy named Barnabas who wanted to take along this guy named Mark who wrote a book in the New Testament. And Mark kind of abandoned him on a missionary trip once. And Paul got ticked off. He's like, I don't want to take Mark anymore. So Barnabas says, well, I like Mark. I'm taking Mark. And I'm going to go there. And Paul says, all right, well, I'm going to take someone else and go there. So there was already conflict. In the midst of God working. 
What was interesting, though, is it was this conflict, it wasn't conflict around mission, it was just strategy or approach. And God did great things with both of them, through both of their ministries. So conflict and God moving, it's all like simultaneous. It, it just naturally happens. But then you get even more of that stuff going on if you look at the, the book of 1 Corinthians. And just turn to chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians if you have it. Because here's the deal. Paul is writing to the people in Corinth. And the whole book of 1 Corinthians is primarily in response to a whole bunch of mess going on in the church. There is a mess. Sexual immorality. A guy is sleeping with his stepmom. The believers are suing one another. They're abusing worship and, and during communion and they're, 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 they're jockeying for social status and how they look in other people's eyes. And the whole time, the Spirit of God is doing great things, but they are just a mess, unethical, immoral, unbiblical mess going on. And so God uses Paul to address it because at the same time while he's moving, we are still people and we are still uh, human beings and it just, it just gets messy. So here's what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Check this out. In verses uh, 1 through, I'm sorry, yeah, 1 through 3. And remember, Paul is pretty black and white. He's pretty aggressive kind of personality. I'm going to read out of the message translation, which is kind of fun to read. Paul responds and says, But for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Paul says, hey, you're acting like children? I'm going to treat you like children. Well then, I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. He's pretty hardcore. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or what makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? God can be moving in our lives, but we still have to deal with our own selfishness and sinful nature. It's just always going to be there. It's actually normal. We don't want to camp there, but we want to keep growing, but it's normal. I always like to say, where two or more are gathered, there's a problem. <laughs> My wife and I have been married, Shelly and I, for, uh, I think, 19 years now. And uh, I say, think, now all the, all the ladies are hating on me. You don't know? It's 18 or 19. And when we were first married, the first couple of years, we had our first baby, Ashley. And we were just stressed out. We, we, didn't, we didn't grow up in homes that modeled marriage well. So we're trying to figure it out. We're stumbling through that. Our first baby, we didn't know anything about parenting. And we, were, we had stressful jobs, stressful home life, trying to be new parents. It was crazy. So when it comes Sunday morning time to go to church, it was stressful. I mean, we, we live in Michigan. We're from Michigan. You know what it's like to get a baby dressed and ready to go outdoors in Michigan in the wintertime? It is a satanic process. It is no fun at all. We'd be so strong. We'd be late going to church, getting the baby ready, getting her out in the car, and then we start bickering on the way back and forth on the way to church. Before you knew it, before we get there, we're arguing, and we pull into church, and someone greets us in the parking lot, like, hey, blah, 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 blah. Get around to our thing. We get out, you know, we kind of tone it down. I'm carrying the, the car seat in. It's getting heavy, and we're just fuming. We walk in the door, and some nice person says, welcome to church. Welcome to Cornerstone Church at Scott's Great to see you. We're like, yeah, it's a great day. God is so good. Isn't the Lord awesome? Glory, hallelujah. We come in like, oh God, I don't even want to be here. Kind of stuff. I know I'm the only one who's ever experienced that. Okay? 
And we were just kind of grunt through it and fake through that we were actually happy to be there. But we were two human beings in conflict. And it just kept going on for a couple of years. So we thought, what are we going to do about this? This is crazy. So we, we, fought, we, we, we found a solution that I will give to you for free today. This will change your life. If you're married and you were like us and you're arguing on your way to church, do what Shelly and I decided to do. We decided to drive separately to church. <laughs> We did. We did. It was awesome. It was beautiful. It was great. And then eventually, I went on staff at that church, and we've been driving separately to church for like 20 years now. It's just crazy. I don't know if we'd argue yet or not. We probably would. I don't know. But we're two or more gathered. There are problems. The church is messy because it's made up of people. And Paul is addressing these issues, and it's kind of normal, but, but we don't want to stay there. God calls us into community. He does his work in our life primarily through other followers of Christ, but it's messy. And I'll prove something else too. Not only is it messy because we're just people, there's crazy people in the church. You're crazy. You are crazy out in saying town, town. Let me prove it right now. You want me to prove it? All right. If you are here, just raise your hand. If you are a cat lover, raise your hand right now. See? See? Crazy people. In the church. You don't think that establishes it? Okay. If you live in Mesa, raise your hand. Crazy people are in the church. It's just the way it is. It's always going to be that way. Uh, But Paul addresses it. And he writes something in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we kind of, those of us who read the Bible, affectionately call the love chapter. As if it's like the love boat theme or something like that. And I tell you this, every wedding that I officiate, I'm always reading out of 1 Corinthians 13. And it's funny because it's that, you know, love is patient, love is kind, all that kind of stuff, right? You're kind of familiar with it. And it's amazing because you read it at the wedding and it's, you say, love is patient. You can just see it in the bride's eyes. Through the veil, she's like, oh, the, yes. And you, you kind of peek over their shoulder, the married couple's out there and someone's going, mm-mm. Love is kind. Oh, she's so kind to me. And some guy's out there going, wait for four days from now kind of stuff, right? What's funny, though, is that God did not give us 1 Corinthians primarily to be used for a wedding ceremony. He gave us 1 Corinthians as Paul's response to deal with the mess in the church. He's like, I want you to show them what love looks like and how difficult it can be, but how we are to behave toward one another. Here's what it says in verse 13, or chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. You can feel the conviction level just rising after every statement, right? It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Crazy. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's, I mean, I kind of have a filing cabinet. Jeez. It's like you get at this point, you're like, come on, Lord, you're unfair. You're so mean. But I think what God might be saying in this is like, no, it can, it can happen, but it is a supernatural work of my spirit in your life. Because you can only grit your teeth through this stuff for so long when God says, no, you're going to need me to, to live and love this way. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, don't get excited when paybacks happen. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. That's what God's saying in the mess of church because it's full of human beings. Humanity is colliding with divinity. And I want to show you how to love one another because it's going to happen. I was kind of putting this stuff together this week and uh, my 17-year-old daughter, Ashley, we're sitting at the kitchen table and I'm talking about this because you know, I'm like, how would I say this or that? And she listens and she says some really neat stuff. And I said, when I'm talking about the messiness of the church, right, you've seen that, right? And she's like, oh yeah, dad, I've seen that. I said, well, what would you say to people when you're talking about that topic? And, and she said this right back. She says, tell them this. I mean, honest God truth. She says, don't tell them, don't let your image of God be blurred by your image of the church. Pretty amazing for a 17-year-old girl, huh? When it's messy, don't let your image of God be blurred by what you currently see in the image of the church. When Ashley was, uh, gosh, just a toddler, right before she was walking, so she must have been 12, 13, 14 months old, we were in a grocery store, Shelly, Ashley, and I. And uh, being in Michigan, we were in uh, this big chain of grocery stores called Meyer. And Meyer was kind of like Super Walmart before Super Walmart even had the idea of being that. So Meyer rocks. And we're in Meyer getting groceries. And I don't know if you're a, if you're a parent and you, maybe you've been there where you put your, you put your little one in, they're not in a car seat, but they're in that little deal up there where you put your bread right in the top of the cart. And they want to stay there for like two minutes. And then they're climbing all over the place and they're reaching for stuff. You know what I mean? They're licking the handlebar on the thing. It's so gross. Now everybody's carrying those little baby with the wipes. Oh, this is horrible, you know. But it's just, it's no fun. And we were at the grocery store getting groceries. And Ashley is just agitated and no fun at all. And so finally, Shelly says, we come up to checkout. We've had enough. She says, take Ashley on the other side of checkout. Go sit on that bench and just get her out of my sight. It's okay, mom. It's normal. You're, you're going to make it, all right? And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I take her over. Shelly's in checkout, putting the food up on the deal. And we're sitting on the bench. And Ashley quickly, you know, gets down. And she's crawling around. People are going by in their shopping carts. Checkout's about 15 feet away. And next to the bench is a little bubble gum dispensing machine. And it, was, it had chiclets in it. Who knows what chiclets are? Okay, quick point. You can't eat just one. Chicklets are at least a handful at a time, right? 50 or more is better. Okay, so I just want to put that in. So the chiclet machine is there, and the base of the chiclet machine is not like a flat or a rounded base. It was a prawn, like three legs going out. And so between the floor and the top of the base was about that much space. So Ashley's crawling around. She's being really cantankerous, and she's crawling around. And she goes over, and I'm just sitting there like, I can't even keep her down. So she she kind of migrates over to the chiclet uh, dispenser and she crawls over there and she reaches under the chiclet base and she pulls out a chiclet that had fallen on the ground. Now picture it. If you're going to grab an old chiclet under the machine, what's going to come out with that chiclet? Dirt, dust, hair hanging off the chiclet, right? Exactly. So then I'm looking at him like, you're not going to do that, are you? You really wouldn't because I'd have to kill you right here. That just wouldn't be a good parenting thing to do. She proceeds to put the chiclet in her mouth. Hair's hanging out of her mouth. (laughs) And I'm sitting here going, oh man, here we go. I've got to bring out the hook. 
right? The, the parenting hook. And I go over there and I'm like, give me the chiclet, give me the chiclet. And she's fighting it back. And she's, she's throwing her, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, man. She's throwing herself around and I finally get the chiclet out. And you know, it's all discolored. There's hair hanging off it. There's spits on my finger. I kind of like fling it away. And she just screams bloody murder. She is screaming, I'm telling you. And then I'm like, I got nothing for you, kid. I am done because if I get close to you, my bad side, my dark side is going to come out. I'm just going to protect you by distancing myself from you right now. So I go and I sit back on the bench. Strollers are going, they're not strollers, but grocery carts. She's so mad. She's screaming. She starts banging her forehead on the floor. (laughs) Bang, 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 and screaming. And I'm like, it's your forehead, not mine. And I kid you not, she's banging her forehead on the floor. She's screaming bloody murder. And a couple ladies walk by with their grocery cart. They look at me. And you know what they were thinking because their eyes said it. You are the devil. You are a horrible parent. How can you let your child hurt herself? I mean, it was, it was, they looked right through my soul, man. And I'm sitting here and I didn't say anything. Thank goodness. But here's, you know, the inner voice talks, right? You say to yourself, but it doesn't come out of your mouth. And those are good moments, right? And what I was saying to myself was I was talking to them. And I was like, woman, don't be looking at me like that. Who do you think you are? Don't judge me. You don't know my story here. You don't know the morning I've had with this girl. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how she took a chiclet, shoved it in her mouth. You don't know how I rescued her from Ebola, from the chiclet, Right? You just go on your way with your shopping cart and go home, woman. Stay out of my face. That's what I'm thinking on the inside. The point of it is that we all have a story. We don't know. I don't know your story. If I see your kid banging their head on the ground, crying, I'm going to think, man, do something. I don't know you're exhausted. I don't know you've given it almost everything you could have and you are at the the end i don't know what you've been through i don't know why you behave the way you behave i don't know your past i don't know the pain the baggage you carry so when god brings us into community together i've got to remember that if someone is different than me embrace diversity have fellowship around christ and if it looks like they desperately need something from god i've got to not judge them And remind myself, God may want to use me to minister to them. I don't know your story. And Paul says, it's a mess, but love is patient. Love is kind. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It does not boast. It always trusts. It always protects. And so the way that God says for us to walk through this thing called community and church is that love walk in love we were never called to walk alone in our walk with Christ it's always in the community of other people we're in this together and maybe you're here today and you're just checking out the church thing for those of us who know Jesus we hope more than just checking out the church thing that you consider Christ and you consider who he is and who he could be in your life because he can be savior He can be Lord. He can be strength. He can give you the confidence that when this life ends and you step into eternity, you have peace with God. 
in the midst of all that, if you choose him, he's going to throw you into this mess of people or the church down the road or Central Christian or Christ Church of the Valley or New City Church in Phoenix or Redemption Church, whatever, it doesn't matter. He's going to call you into community and walk in love because God will move in the midst of our humanity. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask us all to stay seated. Let's just worship for a moment. Take communion together like they did in Acts chapter 2 with a heart of worship and awe in who God is. So let's pray. Father God, today we, uh, we just want to pause in all the busyness of life, God, and put you first and worship you. God, we thank you so much that you have called us into community. There are no lone rangers on this path. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would continue to just minister to us through other believers and help us to be those that you use to minister to folks as well. And in all the messiness of humanity, Lord, help us to be patient, to be kind, realizing that even when that's existing, your presence is still moving in our midst. And we thank you, Lord, so much for that, Lord. God, we thank you for the opportunity to take communion and remember you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.